Hello, my name's Catherine Kemp, and welcome to Trust Exercise, part of the UNSW Grand Challenge on Trust. In this episode, we chat to Professor Megan Davis. Megan is a cobble cobble woman from Queensland, a Pro Vice Chancellor, Professor of Law at UNSW, a member of the Referendum Council, and a diehard rugby league fan. In this episode, we talk about the ethical loneliness Indigenous Australians experience, the shocking findings of the Family as Culture review, and the heartbreak that has given rise to deep distrust of authorities. What a First Nations voice to Parliament would mean, the differences and similarities between Black Lives Matter movements in the United States and Australia, What's going wrong with our recitations of acknowledgements of country? And what it is that Megan puts her trust in for our future. Megan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Catherine. Now, in a, a recent article, I saw you referred to a comment by Aboriginal lawyer and Barkindji woman, Gemma McKinnon, who you mentored through the Uluru process. And you quoted Gemma as saying, Australian governments have become comfortable with the idea of symbolic forms of reconciliation. We have endured years of lemon myrtle dusted morning teas, flag raisings and screenings of rabbit proof fence, yet institutionalised racism prevails everywhere I look. Do you think in recent years Australian governments have concentrated on symbolic gestures at the expense of substantive reconciliation? Yeah, I mean, I think they have. I think there's a lot of evidence to demonstrate that. I mean, in some ways it, it, it emanates from a position in which bureaucracy who feeds government have given up in some ways on finding uh, solutions to the kind of seemingly intractable problems that our people face um, across the country, um, uh, short of uh, them controlling our lives um, and and the money that is distributed to those communities. Um, the, The kind of proclivity for symbolism is evident everywhere really um it's evident in uh the desire for you know symbolic recognition in the australian constitution over substantive change that might actually empower people and make a difference to people's lives it's it's evident in in the ways in which the government is committed to gestures and not just governments but the the nation um their preference for Symbolic gestures like acknowledgements of country, um, uh, but at the same time seemingly oblivious to the fact uh, that the original grievance that the first peoples of this nation hold is yet to be resolved or adequately responded to by the Australian people and the Australian state. So I think there's an overwhelming sentiment in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community uh, that governments... Um, across the Federation prefer symbolism. You've spoken of what it means to experience what some have called an ethical loneliness in being an Indigenous Australian. 
Can you tell us what that concept of ethical loneliness means and what consequences it has? Yeah, I stumbled upon this um, concept when I was preparing to sit on the referendum council that was set up by Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull. And the reason why I'd found this literature was because of my deep concern as a constitutional lawyer that politicians and media um, and, and political elites weren't listening to what our people were saying about the type of recognition that they sought um, in the constitution um, was not in alignment with what politicians and the political elite sought. And that really frustrated me because we'd go into high-level meetings with Tony Abbott and and, and the opposition leader, I think, was Bob, Bill Shorten and, and many other meetings where people would just say, look, you know, can't you just go with symbolism or, you know, symbolism is going to be the best option and, you know, really we should do this tiny little step of symbolism and in 20 years go for the big substantive reforms. Um, and it became really frustrating. Um, there was even a campaign for uh, um, recognition called the Recognise Movement and, even they wouldn't listen to what the community was saying about, um, you know, we don't want a symbolic form of recognition. And so I started reading around the idea or the concept of, you know, a, a, a polity like ours um, saying things and nobody ever, ever hearing what we're saying. And I stumbled upon a book that it was newly published um, by an American scholar called Jill Stauffer and it was called Ethical Loneliness. And and she she builds this book and her research off a lot of the work done with um, some of the former Jewish um, um, uh, in, inmates in concentration camps who'd been interviewed after they'd left um, those camps during World War II um, about the experience of being abandoned. Um, so Jill talks a lot in this book, obviously, about this concept of feeling abandoned by humanity. And, you know, obviously as a constitutional lawyer, I've been working on constitutional recognition for 20 years, but certainly I've been involved formally with the state process for 10 years. And, and there is a sense that there is a dislocation of our people from the Australian legal and political system. Um, you know, it's present in the, the desire not to vote the desire not to enrol to vote, the desire not even to get a birth certificate to enable you to vote, um, the desire not to engage in mainstream political and legal institutions. And that dislocation um, plays out in many ways, including antisocial behaviour of our young people. And, and, you know, you often think about this because that kind of existential crisis or whatever it is that our people are feeling um, um, is... Has a, has a very detrimental impact upon our health and our well-being, um, but also on things like the Uluru Statement and the reform push because people choose not to push anymore because they give up. I also found this ethical loneliness existed in the two-year inquiry that I led for the New South Wales government into Aboriginal out-of-home care, and in that review I was looking at the big regulatory system of facts um, or family and community services which now has youth justice um, in its portfolio in New South Wales where Aboriginal families don't f push back and fight caseworkers or the system when it comes to removal uh, because they don't trust the courts and they don't have any 
respect for authority and it's not even an outward disrespect it's just giving up that's not all aboriginal families because a lot of aboriginal families also fight but i was really interested in in the families that just kind of give up and i don't mean that in a negative sense they are just so used to authority dictating their lives and a lot of the children who's um or young people who 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 um are removed from their families their families were removed themselves and there's this trajectory from today to the protection era, that, that era of compulsory racial segregation in Australia. And, um, and so this ethical loneliness plays out right across the board as far as I could see. But certainly with constitutional recognition, nobody would listen to what we had to say. Nobody would sit there and hear what we had to say and then contemplate it and debate it or argue it. Just never, they never move from their position, which is they know what's best and this is how it's going to be. And I think um, that feeling of, that, that does feed that feeling of being let down by the people who are meant to be there to protect you. So out in the communities, whether it's deaths in custody or suicide or education rates, all of the institutions and professionals that are set up to support you and, and provide you with a life that rises to the threshold of a dignified human life all of this system, these professionals, let our people down and they feel just this um, complete abandonment by humanity and that is that is what, you know, we are left with and that is what we had to grapple with when we ran the constitutional dialogues because, you know, our people didn't think that whatever they said to us as Aboriginal members of the Referendum Council was ever going to come to fruition. Um, and so... And so, yeah, I think um, I think there is this sense that our people have been abandoned by the institutions that are meant to represent them. The Uluru Statement itself speaks of the torment of our powerlessness and at the end of the statement from the heart there were three reforms that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people said would be a meaningful form of constitutional recognition of voice, treaty and truth and that um, idea of a constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice to Parliament was very clear from the statement itself and from your advocacy since. Can you explain the form of change that's proposed to give effect to a First Nations voice to Parliament? One more point, Catherine, I think that I would make about ethical loneliness is the ethical component of it, and that is to say the actual act of, of removing yourself from, from mainstream society and participating in those legal and political structures is, is an ethical act in and of itself because it is a way of surviving. It is a survival technique of people because there's only so much disappointment and, um, you know, letdown that you can take that is humanly possible to take without feeling really abandoned by, you know, those institutions and structures. So I, I just wanted to make that point about the, about the kind of, you know, the ethical decision that our people make to, to, to survive um, and that is very much a part of that ethical loneliness. It's a choice to survive. Um, the, the voice to parliament emerged as the primary reform in the Uluru Statement um, uh, that was issued to the Australian people. 
The Uluru Statement, of course, was the culmination of 13 dialogues, and over the course of those dialogues, we took out a number of constitutional reforms for our people to contemplate. I don't think it's any surprise, really, that the voice um, was the priority over previously more popular reforms among our people. The voice ranked higher than a treaty. A voice was higher than a non-discrimination clause. Um, and this was a shock and surprised to many um, among the political elite, including the black political elite, because it wasn't what they expected. But I think one of the one of the really important ethics of what we did was the design of the dialogues had to have the voices of the powerless. So it had to have people from grassroots communities that don't normally get to have a say, that don't normally get to exercise power, and that's a really key point about the dialogues. It elevated the voices of those who are the powerless in our system. And I think the voice to parliament is not, it's a reform that Turnbull and Shorten agreed for us to take out. It's not an uncommon reform in liberal democracies with large or significant Indigenous populations. And generally it's a way um, or a mechanism in which Aboriginal or Indigenous participation in the democratic life of the state is enhanced. And in the dialogues, we talked to about 40 or 50 different ways in which liberal democracies around the world, UN member states, accommodate Indigenous voices within the democratic framework of the state. How do you amplify the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander voice? And so the voice to Parliament, this idea that we would have this mechanism that would be... Um, triggered whenever there was significant laws passed under the race power section 5126 which is the most uh, um, the most used power insofar as indigenous peoples post 1967 um, or the plenary power um, in which the Commonwealth makes laws for the Northern Territory and we know that the Northern Territory intervention was empowered under um, the plenary power in, in the Constitution. But, but the most important thing is that the voice to parliament is envisaged as a mechanism in which the Commonwealth would be compelled to have Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people at the table when passing laws and policies about our lives. And I think it's important to keep in mind that the big shift in thinking and the, the kind of prominence of the voice as a reform uh, option emerged from about 2014 up until Uluru 2017 and that was influenced by a policy uh, setting introduced by the Commonwealth that saw all of the Aboriginal programs and policies across the Commonwealth bureaucracy um, dismantled and all of that funding put into one bucket and so communities across the country um, had mechanisms and policies and programs that had been implemented since the Whitlam era defunded and dismantled. They were then all asked to apply for the money um, from the Commonwealth and what we now, now know from the Australian National Audit Office is that over 70% of that money then went to non-Indigenous organisations and for many to fund their RAP initiatives, their Reconciliation Action Plan initiatives. So so the voice to parliament really, I think, speaks 
or spoke to those grassroots communities who feel powerless, um, who feel like they don't have a say in laws and policies that actually are acutely applied or they acutely feel that are applied to them. Um, and But the key thing about the voice is that it's constitutional. It's not legislative. And that's a really key point and shift, I think, in the constitutional recognition uh, debate or aspirations of of my people because we are not um, seeking um, uh, legislation, which is easier and less controversial, but we're seeking constitutional enshrinement because we want to remove ourselves from the ideology of parliamentarian or parliamentary business. What we want to do is to remove ourselves from politics so that we're not um, a political football game for politicians and that by enshrining the voice, we are compelling the state, we are compelling the Commonwealth to have us at the table, meaning we're using the force of law um, because symbolism is not going to result in a situation where they will have us at the table. They won't. They need to be forced. Um, and so I think that was a really powerful historic outcome of the Uluru Statement. I know at one stage of former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull characterised the proposal for a constitutional voice to Parliament as a third chamber. What did he mean by that and what do you think of that characterisation? Malcolm Turnbull was seeking to argue, I don't think genuinely, um, that a voice to Parliament would be like um, a third chamber of parliament we've got the um senate um and we've got the house of representatives and he was implying that the indigenous voice would be a third chamber the point of creating a scare campaign around the idea of the third chamber was to throw up all sorts of scenarios such as you know would the voice be able to stop supply or you know it was intended to put into the minds of Australians the idea that a voice to Parliament um, violated equality um, and elevated Aboriginal people above other Australians in the law. Malcolm Turnbull, as a Prime Minister, is a continuation of retail Australian politics uh, when it comes to reform, meaning he reformed very, very little, although he spoke about it a lot, and uh, Constitutional recognition was just one thing in a long line of, um, uh, you know, reform uh, mishaps for him and prime ministers before, but particularly when it comes to Indigenous affairs. Uh, I think a lot of Australians, and we know this from um, feedback, were disappointed that Turnbull didn't allow the voice to Parliament to have or be the subject of a robust discussion and debate in the Australian public. Rather than wait for that debate to occur, um, as one normally does in Western liberal democracies, where both sides of the argument can ventilate their positions, he sought to shut it down uh, immediately. I think what Malcolm Turnbull did was to demonstrate to the people who were reluctant to participate in the dialogue process. Um, he just demonstrated what they had said would occur when it comes to constitutional change and, and being taken seriously in this country by, um, by political leadership. 
Um, and that is to say he was completely and utterly dismissive of an idea that he just simply did not understand. But it was, you know, we've come a long way since Turnbull. We have a new Prime Minister who is much more open to having that discussion. Um, but I think it, it unfortunately, unfortunately, it did um, reinforce for many Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, the problem of... Um, uh, Western liberal democracy as it is currently configured. Um, ballot box democracy means that our people are so easily made, um, you know, as I said before, a political football um, and really serious law reform proposals uh, are dismissed um, in, in, in such a kind of glib way um, when, in fact, um, it was a very clever um, and sophisticated uh reform idea by our people using a deliberative democratic method um, and and so robust and clever that, you know, former Chief Judge Murray Gleeson and Bob French and um, Ken Hain and, you know, it's, it's the, the Law Council of Australia, it's been, and, and also, you know, 22 Australian global law firms have all endorsed uh, the voice to parliament as a robust um, um, a proposal to be inserted into the constitution. Uh, so, you know, we 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 were we were very disappointed, but not surprised. I, I know the Uluru statement from the heart is issued to the Australian people rather than to the parliament or politicians. And I imagine from what you're saying now that that was for this very reason to avoid this becoming politicised and um, in the process. What has the response of the Australian people been? to the Uluru Statement? The response of the Australian people has been really, really good. It's been really solid. Um, we, we, as leaders in this um, dialogue process, have been overwhelmed by the, the, the support from all sectors of the Australian community for, for this reform to happen. Um, and, and we suspected that that would be the case because we know that race relations are never quite what they, you know, are conveyed at a political level because politics are necessarily um, and to some extent unavoidably adversarial. Um, but the Australian people seem to really rise to the occasion. We know from the polling that you know, 60 to 70% of Australians support voting yes at a referendum now, and that is before there's any campaign or referendum discussion or debate on, on The Voice. Um, but we had many organisations from day one led by ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services, who signed up something like 10,000 signatories to support Uluru very quickly in the first few weeks. You know, a year later, all of the corporate companies with RAPs, Reconciliation Action Plans and other entities such as law firms um, came on board to support Uluru and the, the walk of the Australian people for a better future. Um, and that support just continues to grow um, and to mobilise. And in some ways, you know, um, and in some ways we knew that for this to happen, it would require a people's movement for a Prime Minister to be even remotely confident of you know, pressing go on a referendum. Uh, there's so much focus in Canberra 
on losing a referendum, um, the concern about losing a referendum overrides all considerations, including the fact that this is an area that is ripe for law reform. Um, so there's, you know, a, a calculation that's made in Canberra that it's better to keep a kind of dysfunctional state of affairs than it is to actually, you know, deploy the mechanism that the constitutional founders put into the text to amend it so it keeps up to date and up with the times in terms of developments in Australian society. Um, but the response has been great. Um, I, I've been really just so overwhelmed by this. And I think part of it is Australians wanting to become a part of something. And one of the most generous things about the Uluru invitation, I think, is this offer that after Australians vote yes in a referendum to provide First Nations with a voice, that it unlocks something really special for all Australians that might mean that we can dispense with the kind of, you know, perfunctory acknowledgements of country um, and and other kind of symbolic things, awkward things, or cringeworthy things sometimes for Aboriginal people to sit through. But the, the many kinds of symbolism that Australians um, do deploy um, in recognition of us. Um, and, 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 yeah, so I think it's, it's an op- I think people see it as an opportunity to bring the country together. You mentioned before the, these um, First Nations regional dialogues in 2016-17 leading up to the Uluru Statement and the sense of exhaustion um, in some communities and the, the disbelief that this system could actually result in substantive reform. And it, it gives the impression that there was a sense of, um, certainly for some Indigenous Australians, uh, losing trust in this long and arduous process. How did history and truth-telling feature in these First Nations regional dialogues? Was that a necessary step in gaining faith in this process? I think um, history was a really key part of, of the Uluru Dialogues. Um, because we needed to anchor this constitutional recognition process in something. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean it was always a positive thing for our people, but we were able to show a trajectory of history in which our own activism and hard work had led to real change. And so we wanted to put the recognition process on that kind of historical timeline. Um, So it did demonstrate that the really significant developments for Indigenous rights in Australia have come as a consequence of our hard work, either through um, the political process or through the High Court, Um, but but very rarely has it come as a consequence of Parliament doing it off its own bat. We've always had to, um, you know, um, aspire to something and then work out how to get that implemented or operationalised by Parliaments. And this was no... This is no different. So um, so history was really key in terms of anchoring the work that we were doing. But history was really also important, um, I suppose, in terms of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander participants' bewilderment that the Commonwealth sought to recognise them but didn't really know who they were. And... Um, 
one of the very early dialogues in Broom, we had a very old lady say, you know, why don't they want to know about us? I mean, do they genuinely not want to know about who we are and what, what has happened to us and our culture and our history? And that became a similar lament right across the country, so much so that we felt we had to build it into the reform agenda and that was the third component of the Uluru reforms, voice, makarata and truth, meaning truth-telling. Um, you know, history was really just ever-present um, in this conversation because in some ways this recognition exercise, I mean, really 67 was about making neutral something that had happened in 1901 so 1901 excluded Aboriginal people explicitly from the powers of the Commonwealth insofar as making laws for people of any races. And then 67 addressed that by deleting the exclusion of Aboriginal people. This recognition exercise now is something entirely different. It's recognising our voice within, the democ within our democracy. And so there's actually a really direct line from um, today to deep history to... 60,000 years ago and the ancient polities that used to exist and live on this continent um, to, to 1788 and the, the arrival of um, the British, um, that original grievance hasn't been settled. Marbo didn't settle it satisfactorily. Um, and that is what Uluru is. It is this lengthy trajectory from deep time to 1788 to now and we're calling out the Australian people to come and meet with us because we have a grievance and the one entity that can address this grievance so we can all move forward is the parliament. Um, but on this, the people are ahead of, of politics, they're ahead of the parliament. And so we need to, in our view, walk together as a people to compel Australian politics, that is, just imbued with inertia when it comes to change in this nation, that this is something that needs to be done. So history absolutely drove everything that we did. And it sounds then like um, that sense of, of truth needing to be heard and accepted and absorbed uh, forms a foundation for trust in, in the future process. Um, I know you've mentioned a couple of times now the the, the way in which Australians um, perform the acknowledgement of country in some situations, which is uh, supposed to recognise some of that history, but in many cases can amount to an empty symbolism. I, I was just listening the other day after reading your article about this in the monthly um, to a uh, an acknowledgement of country by a regulator in Australia uh, who actually said that he was about to perform a welcome to country and um, then went on to give a, must have been all of 10 seconds, maybe 20 seconds um, of the, uh, the rote lines um, and uh, mentioned the emerging elders uh, as you had uh, raised in that article uh, what do we need to learn about how to change this this process of making an acknowledgement of country in a way that's meaningful and uh, that shows a real appreciation for what's being said? 
It's a really good question, Catherine, because I think um, it's difficult. There, there are many people who read that piece and are, are utterly confused um, because people see themselves doing acknowledgements as, you know, being allies and doing something positive for Indigenous peoples in Australia. And one of the things we find when we do problematise things like this is people get really angry. Um, you know, Aboriginal people aren't allowed to raise these kinds of objections and they're not allowed to question the empathy that um, Australians, particularly the political elite, have for, um, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture. But as, as time goes on, and Uluru is now to some extent sitting in our near past as, as a piece of very important history, um, you know, we see a nation that, as as you said from the outset, is littered with symbolic kind of gestures, um, but none of the structural work that's required to provide our people or empower our people. And, um, and you know, and part of that is listening. It, in some ways it returns to the ethical loneliness trope in that, it's not just about listening. It's also about hearing what people have to say. And, and one, of, one of the problems we have in this country with truth-telling is the Commonwealth and states often use truth-telling as a way of kicking the can down the road on structural reform, on real substantive change. Um, and so our, a lot of our issues from stolen generations to, in recent times, criminal justice issues and youth detention get kicked into royal commissions and commissions of inquiries where the system sits there and listens, but they're not really hearing what it is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have to say. I, I write in that monthly piece about a very senior member of the judiciary who had done, who'd invited someone to do an acknowledgement um, and this Aboriginal woman um, gave a political um, soliloquy, I think, and um, this judicial member was absolutely furious and furious in relaying the story to me about the fact that she had remembered the acknowledgement, invited someone to attend and give it, and that this woman had spoilt it all. Um, and, you know, was very at pains to say, you know, I empathise, I'm an empathetic person, I empathise with the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people. And it really reminded me of some of the cognitive research that's been done around empathy and how empathy is a block to, to law reform and substantive reform. And, and I think that's really kind of a little bit at the heart of how Australians are managing this relationship with First Nations peoples. Um, we, would we would prefer people to vote yes at a referendum than we would an acknowledgement of country. Um, acknowledgement of country is something that was created in recent history by our people. Um, welcomes are very old, but acknowledgement is a way in which Australians can pay tribute to the country on which they're standing. Um, but as you say, it's 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 more than that. You know, our culture is a very relational culture, um, and it's really important for people when they do acknowledgements to speak from the heart. You don't have to speak from a perfunctory piece of paper with a formula of words about, you know, what the official, you know, local First Nation is. I think it's important to acknowledge that. But it's also important to acknowledge that the formula of words people are using uh, is deliberately crafted in a way to exclude our people's 
you know, right to land ownership. It, it's a political statement about our tenure, particularly the use of the word custodian. Um, and particularly given the land was dispossessed and there has been no apology or compensation or reparation paid for that land. Um, but the inclusion of emerging leaders is, is the worst possible development that, you know, we can't even locate where that began. We think it began in the bureaucracy. But it's a view, viewed as another attempt by, um, you know, the, the, the state to chip away at um, Aboriginal culture. It's a form of assimilation. It's not up to non-Indigenous peoples to honour our emerging leaders. That's a decision of our people and our leaders and our elders to make that call. Um, and so there's a lot of politics wrapped up in this. And we're not saying don't do the acknowledgement of country. We're saying just be mindful of these things. Um, and, and I think until Australians become mindful, um, meaning they're actually not just listening, because there's so many conversations I have where people are like, yeah, yeah, I know what happened with the gorge. Yeah, 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 I know what you're trying to say. And they just shut the conversation dead. It, it requires Australians to, to actually hear what people are saying. And, and that's the problem we have. No one's really hearing what it is that we're saying. Some of going past that symbolism, some of the very concrete and substantial reforms you've sought can be found in uh, the report on family is culture that uh, you chaired the Re family is culture review for in 2019, and that focused in large part on Indigenous children in out of home care and very concerning trends and non compliance there. Um, through that report, we, we see a mention of children, of cases of children being removed from a home while their mother was shopping or removals at 2am or newborns being removed from hospital straight after birth without notifying either parent. How, how far do you think it is from stolen generations to family as culture do you have a sense of progress or that we're getting to a similar result by different means? It's a good question because I, I reflect on this in the context of being a public lawyer and, and the legal system because I think one of the really important things we overlook in the teaching of Indigenous peoples and Australian law is that every step of the way the law plays a really significant role in validating a lot of really um, gross violations of human rights. Um, or, and, and a lot of these things done under what we would call the guise of the rule of law. And, and we don't reflect enough, I don't think, in law school about just how mundane and pedestrian these laws have been from colonial times to, um, you know, federation and post-federation. So what would I say about the kind of parallels between Stolen Gens and now? One of the things we found in the review was that lawyers were lying to the courts. That is to say, lawyers were putting on cases in which there was no evidence to back up removal. Courts are really busy, particularly children's courts. They don't have time always to forensically um, consider the evidence, and particularly when we're dealing with public departments and model litigant rules apply. And I, of there were many things that shocked me in the child review, but, but this shocked me a huge amount. Um, 
that that all of the institutions failed Aboriginal children and parents, but even even the legal system. There were grandmothers coming to us and telling us that their children had been removed on, on unlawful grounds or without substantive evidence um, or without any evidence. And, and all of that um, came to fruition as we did the deep dive into the 1,100-odd cases that we looked at over a year's period. So, so one of my concerns about the parallels is, is those subtle ways in which the legal system works but is not subject to a lot of scrutiny on on that and I think I think um you could see that play out in some of the deaths in custody um issues as well around coronial inquiries and the way in which administrative law and public law functions and I think that's something that needs to be further explored because it's quite extraordinary when you do go back um um into the frontier frontier period in Australian history and then that protection era period, which started to trigger the provisions in the protection acts that allowed for arbitrary removal of children from their families. This has all been done in a very kind of patrician, civilised, um, and as I said, mundane and pedestrian way that Australians kind of don't even blink an eye that it's happening. Um, and one of the... One of the things that I think we haven't learned um, is that in my work with caseworkers who work in the department, there was very little acknowledgement or understanding that some of the key areas of the state where large numbers of children are being removed, um, they are formal reserves and missions. So they are the sites of, you know, significant kind of subjugation and humiliation during that lengthy period of compulsory racial segregation. So we have a modern Australian professional class with very little understanding of Australian history because it's not just Aboriginal history, it's Australian history. Um, and then you've got these eerie parallels um, in terms of the way in which the bureaucracy and the courts justify the numbers of removals. And there's a lot of truisms or there's a lot of you know, narratives that the professional class tell themselves in and around child protection, whether it's social workers or bureau bureaucrats or politicians or lawyers or judges about Aboriginal children needing to be removed, yet we found a large proportion of those children shouldn't have been removed. And the saddest thing, just in terms of the, the theme of this podcast, the saddest thing of all in those deep dive into those files is the numbers of messages left by grandmothers and aunties and uncles who knew their grandchild or niece or nephew was taken into uh, child protection and wanted to be assessed to be a carer. Large numbers of people ringing and leaving messages and they, they were ne their, their calls were never returned. There is nothing on the system that shows that the caseworker has followed up with family. Um or the caseworker has made an arbitrary decision with absolutely no evidence that the candidate is not suitable to care for this child. And, and that's the saddest thing of all, that um, and mothers ringing the department to say, I need help, I need help to 
look after my children because that is the department you go to. And instead of helping the mother with resources and advice and referrals, um, it's, it's flagged as a red flag, a risk for removal, and the children are removed. Um, you can't think of anything more heartbreaking that absolutely feed, feeds the distrust of Aboriginal people for departments um, uh, and, and government than child protection because it, it has routinely let our people down. Just drawing off that immense frustration and what must often be um, extreme anger with this system and these processes, we saw earlier this year um, an ongoing the Black Lives Matter protests with tens of thousands of Australians taking part in marches in the midst of the pandemic and in the face of some significant criticism. Um, I'm curious to know about whether the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States and that in Australia are connected other than in name and a push for justice and if they draw lessons and ideas from each other, what links exist there? Yeah, no, I think I think it's a good question and one I've thought about a lot because obviously it's it's easier for activists to to kind of draw direct links without worrying about the many caveats that exist. And as an academic, you know, we like to be more factual um, when we assess these things. And there are there are there are links. Um, obviously, we're Indigenous peoples, so it is slightly different to the experience of African Americans in the US. And, you know, Catherine, I've spent a lot of time on, I'm on a racial equity um, group in the United States. I'm the only non-American on that group um, run by the Kellogg Foundation or the Kellogg Board. And, and there are, of course, many, many parallels and many differences. Obviously, we have a very lengthy history of uh, issues relating to the conduct of police in, in each jurisdiction um, or police brutality, and that certainly um, led to the Commonwealth's introduction of uh, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody um, to, to consider these matters and also um, the numbers of deaths in custody. I think that report is a really interesting report that still has a lot of resonance today. Um, so, for example, I led the Queensland Royal Commission into youth detention in 2016, I think it was, um, with Catherine McMillan QC. And um, we found the Queensland report of the Royal Commission from like 30 years ago or at that point, 28 years ago, really relevant to the issues that we were seeing in the youth detention centres in places like Townsville, um, the same children from the same areas as what was um, problematic um, back in the Royal Commission days. So what, what, what you do see is um, a particular hotspots for police behaviour that, um, um, you know, you can really map back to the protection era, that period of compulsory racial segregation. At least in New South Wales and Queensland, you saw a situation where when the protection era was dismantled, which was roughly around the 67 referendum, but as Noel Pearson said in the Gough Whitlam oration, the last vestiges of protection were dismantled 
Um, and these are reserves and missions, so, you know, barbed wire kind of areas in which Aboriginal people were herded on and not allowed out of. Um, the late 70s, he said, even after the R Racial Discrimination Act was, was passed. So you can see a really direct link between um, uh, police behaviour and Aboriginal communities and, and that, his, that history, that very real kind of history um, of... Uh, compulsory racial segregation and the way in which that's manifested itself to this day and that is an absolute lack of trust um, of our people for the police um, and that trust exists to this day and I, I remember just as a child growing up um, we were always routinely you know warned about the police my brothers, I remember when they were little going down to get an ice cream one day when we were living in Eagleby. They were going down to Eagleby Coles and mum saying, you know, if the police pull you up, you, you must give them your name. That's the law um, and your address. You know, th th this is a kind of constant thing that you live with as an Aboriginal person. Um, so there's a lot of parallels in terms of police conduct and un unsatisfactory investigation of police behaviour and police brutality, particularly in relation to deaths in custody. Of course, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody found that on the evidence that was proffered to it that none of the, you know, 100, it was about 90-something, 100-odd cases they investigated had, had occurred as a consequence of intent to kill, meaning people hadn't died because police murdered them, people had died because police had not exercised any sense of duty of care for those people um, and that continues to this day although we now have a series of very um, um, problematic decisions from coroners about um, you know deaths in custody and the role of police or corrections officers in that so there are some parallels there um, and then there are also other parallels. For example, um, Cornell West, for example, uh, um, has argued um, uh, alongside a number of other African-American sociology professors that the black intelligentsia hasn't necessarily prepared the black community for the Black Lives Matters debates. And in particular, I raise the issue of you know, um, abolition of prisons and police and courts. Um, and I know some um, people who see themselves as the Australian extension of Black Lives Matters, you know, have issued manifestos that call for police to be abolished and lawyers and courts and um, et cetera to be abolished. But the argument, or at least some of the concerns raised in the US is that you know, you need to bring your community along with you. So in the States, for example, in places like Chicago, the violence is very much black-on-black um, -black violence and, and communities are asking, well, who's going to protect us if the police aren't there? Um, and similarly in Australia, there were conversations about the fact that, um, you know, what, what will happen to Aboriginal women who are mostly the subject of violence by Aboriginal men um, in relationships, where, where will they go for protection? And so there's a really interesting conversation to be had about the zero to, to 100 law reform approach of, um, of abolition 
and, and while it has its merit in terms of the redistribution of resources to other things, which in my child review report I, I state, you know, more resources up front to support families and to support mothers and children, um, that conversation really has to be had with not just the Aboriginal community but the Australian community. Um, so the really the key difference I would say is probably this. The US is a really interesting country that's gone through a very lengthy period of um, uh, um, truth-telling in a way that hasn't occurred here in Australia. Um, and, and, and that's, 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 that's what I see as the really key difference. I'm not saying things are better in the US, but there certainly has been this really important civil rights era, um, kind of post, um, slavery, post, um, lynching, segregation, Jim Crow era that kind of um, has, some would say, manifested itself today in mass incarceration. But I think there is, and whether it's a numbers game, there is a much more robust conversation and debate and discussion in the US about matters of race than there is here. There's a real reluctance to talk about race and racism in Australia, and particularly when it comes to institutional racism. People really don't like to discuss it in Australia. And what that means then is Australians really struggle to understand what racism and institutional racism looks like. Um, you know, we don't have something like Brian Stevenson's, you know, extraordinary um, lynching monument the, or, or the slavery museum we don't have those kinds of institutions that very frankly and um walk people through this brutal brutal history australia is still in this process of coming to terms with the past um and to that end we're just not in the same space i don't think um as the united states when it comes to these matters so i think i think there 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 are some parallels but um, but there are also some differences. And I suppose the last thing I would just add is the Royal Commission to Aboriginal Deaths and Custody basically said, look, the only way to stop this, police brutality, mass incarceration, is to stop Aboriginal people coming into contact with um, the justice system. So they kind of had a two-pronged approach. They had the justice system and all the things that you could do to shore up people's protection when they come into that system. But the second part of the Royal Commission's approach was about self-determination. It, it basically said that, you know, to keep Aboriginal people out of prisons and out of the legal system, um, governments had to exit from the lives and communities of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people so that they could exercise greater self-determination and greater autonomy over their lives. And what we've seen post Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody in that 30 years is we've seen governments go all, all the way down the other end of the spectrum of self-determination, meaning we're probably in one of the worst eras in Australian history of control and subjugation by bureaucrats. And so Uluru is a really interesting thing. You know, Uluru happened before Black Lives Matter and Uluru is a... 
um, I, when I say Black Lives Matter, I mean the Australian kind of understanding and consciousness of this movement in the US. And I think the Uluru Statement from the Heart provides a really powerful Australian roadmap through those problems because at the core of Uluru is the right to self-determination too. And um, that really that really is the way forward for our people. But from what you've said now, there's that recognition that we are in a very different place in the journey in Australia and and the recognition that it is a journey is right there in the Uluru Statement from the Heart, which finishes by saying we leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. In the context of law reform, I've heard you quoted as saying that imagination is a useful untruth and that people should spend some time just dreaming what meaningful change would look like. What or who is it that you're putting your trust in when you're imagining that better future for Australia? That is a really fine question. I, in, so, in some ways I'm putting my trust in the Australian people to, to really understand that and I do have a lot of faith in the Australian people. I mean, I'm not a Pollyanna about who we are as a nation, but there are many things I love about this country and its people. And so, yeah, I think I'm putting my faith in them. And then as a public lawyer, I would earnestly say that I'm putting my faith in our public institutions to function in the way that they're meant to function. Um... Some people might say that's blind faith, but I really do believe that the system can be, the system can change. And I'm not one of those people who have given up hope that the system can't change. Megan, thanks so much for talking to us today. It's been a splendid education and I'm so glad to have heard this much from you and would love to have talked much longer. Thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me, Catherine. The Trust Exercise podcast series is part of the UNSW Grand Challenge on Trust. To keep up to date with our chats, be sure to subscribe to the show and we'd love you to join the conversation by leaving a comment or review.